It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits, not afraid. I have a fatigue, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen got no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down, like fire in a fire, with the seven gangs and the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, leave the jury beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. And this is the Hour of Doom and Bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, an era of excellence in an erroneous world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Nurse Amy, but my real name is Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And together we are the medical matrimony, the prodigious pair, the beauty and the beast. Guess who's the beast? And well, we. What? You just called me a beast? <laughs> no, I just called I'm myself kidding. a beast. No, I'm joking. <laughs> well, we are here to keep the faithful few together, even if everything else falls apart. That's right. That is what we are here for. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a mischievous mouse? Well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And what are you doing with those mice anyhow? <laughs> Don't Me, if I had tell if the I audience. had meesey mice, I would get one of those little Ferris wheel things. What are they called? A pussycat? No. Oh no, a hamster wheel. Hamster wheel. And I would let them have fun every day. Oh, that would be so nice. And you know what toys? kind of they also have other kinds of them. fun too that usually lead to thousands of other mice. Oh yeah. <laughs> Well, maybe we'll just get, like, two girls or something, and they can have fun doing each other's hair. Anyway, get in touch with us anytime, if you dare. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only. And do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Yeah, but when times are tough, you're dealing with stuff. So don't stomp off in a huff. Get some training in medical supplies, and if you do, you might just keep your people healthy in times of trouble. 
in a disaster, somebody's got to take the reins of the buggy. Would you have the knowledge? Would you have the training? Would you have the materials to take over and be the highest medical asset left to your people? Could you do some good in bad times? Well, it's time to show the world you got more sense than a cabinet full of cats and get the training that you need. And while you're at it, how about a quality medical kit as well? I can't think of a better place to get it than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equal medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster. They'll make your home, your workplace, your school, your church safer. And they're designed by an honest-to-gosh medical doctor and advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff, and you'll agree that our kits are what you should have in times of trouble. Matter of fact, you want more proof? Check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net and see what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits and service. On top of that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings accounts. Just look at our special HSA FSA section in the store. Or I just want to welcome our new sponsor, Gold Wealth Management. When it comes to survival and being prepared, we know the must-have items that immediately come to mind are a complete medical kit and bug-out bag. Our friends at Gold Wealth Management remind us to have our bug-out bank in place as well. Your bug-out bank should contain physical gold and silver along with three months of living expenses and cash. Call Gold Wealth Management to get a free education about investing in gold and silver. At current prices, the gold and silver market is on sale. Call 866-GLD-SLVR. Gold, silver. That's 866-GLD-SLVR or 866-453-7587. You'll be glad you did. A little more housekeeping. You know what? We learn as much from you as you do from us. More probably. So why not connect with the geezer and the goddess? It is Easy, so easy, and here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely, and if you dare, like I said before. If you dare. <laughs> contact us at, well, by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, DR Bones, and Nurse Amy, and also our one-stop shopping on Facebook, and I don't mean shopping, shopping. I mean find everything, and of course that would be Doom and Bloom. You can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. I even have an Instagram, which, by the way, I know you'll be so happy. I have put up four Instagram, whatever you call them, posts. Yes, we've entered the twenty first century. Tweets. I don't know. Twenty what years they, late. They called Instagrams. Yes, I've put up gram four grams. Okay. Okay, Grandma. <laughs> Today. All right, Grammy. Oh, no, I'm not a grandma yet, <laughs> but I'm wishing someday I would I would like to have little grandbabies. Anyway, our Instagram is actually Doom and Bloom Medical. I know that's long, but it's very descriptive, right? That's right. You can't Sign mess up. that up. Sign up and get all sorts of crazy pictures from us. So <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, we can actually put a little video up, too. Oh, okay. I'm we'll not sure how long that's allowed to be, but we will work today on that. I took a picture. I made candied jalapenos. Because we're growing jalapeno peppers. And I said, what am I going to do with these? You don't I know. We're up to our really, neck in them. Well, you don't really like spicy, spicy foods. Well, I don't mind. If you cook them and you put some cream cheese in them, boy, I'll pop, those poppers probably pretty darn good. Well, that'll have to be for the next batch because I candied these. Oh, okay. Candied jalapenos. I used organic honey, 
on one of our trips we got this. I'm not sure. Probably it's probably Tennessee honey. I used I actually put some lemongrass, fresh lemongrass from our front yard. Wow. To give it a little extra flavor. And I used some weird stuff. I used Italian seasoning, white vinegar, and um, I think it's called red redfish seasoning. Just to give it a little extra kick, d- deeper flavor. Ah. But lots of honey. Lots and lots of honey. And I simmered that in the white vinegar. And then I added the chopped jalapenos, sliced. Mm-hmm. I didn't take the seeds out, although some of the seeds fell off. And I planted them in the side yard. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get some more jalapenos. Oh my we'll have a jalapeno garden. But you know the funny thing is? I planted them right next to the sugar cane. So sweet. So the next time I get the jalapenos, I could take the sugar spicy. cane. And I could squeeze the sugar cane and use that juice to make candied jalapenos. Wow. How convenient is that? Anyway, so that's one of the Instagrams. We also took a picture of our corn. Yes, our corn's growing very nicely. We're starting to get some heads on it. So we are... Glass Gym Corn. Look it up. It's got to be beautiful. G-E-M, Glass Gym Corn. Beautiful. I can't wait. Awesome. And hey, do not forget to check out our YouTube channel, DR Bones and Nurse Amy. you got about 200 videos on there right now, all of them on some aspect of medical preparedness. And remember to sign up for our RSS feed so you don't miss any of our content that might help you save lives in times of trouble. Just go to the upper right of the main page at doomandbloom.net. And did I mention you can find some of our articles in great magazines like Backwoods Home, American Survival Guide, Survivor's Edge, all sorts of places. Hey, you know what? You may have read some of my articles where I talk about the latest military methods used to save more lives on the battlefield. Well, you might say... Well, how does an old country surgeon, an obstetrician of all things, have any idea of what the military's doing? The guy's an old geezer for Pete's sake. Is he some kind of geriatric Navy SEAL corpsman or combat medic or big city trauma surgeon? No, I'm not. I am indeed just an old country doctor. But I respect those guys too much, and I'm not going to pretend that I'm in their league. But I'll tell you one thing. I do know a thing or two about what's worked for me over a very long career And I keep up with the latest thinking in military, EMS, and wilderness medical journals. They all come to my house. It is a library. As a matter of fact, I've just added a second room as a second library. That's how much stuff I got over here. You, If you like books, you would love a visit to the mystical library (laughs) of Dr. Bones. But... That's not even including, do you remember the hundreds of books that we hauled in three trips with an expedition to the library? Yes. And donate. Do you remember three yes. full expedition truck? I mean, <laughs> we must have had enough book to have an actual library. I really think <sighs> that's true. Yes, it is pretty darn crazy. Well, you know what? You may have heard me reference something called TCCC in articles, podcasts, or videos. TCCC, also known as TC3 or TCCC, it's a term that means tactical combat casualty care, and it represents the military's current recommendations regarding the care of soldiers who have incurred traumatic injuries. These have been so widely accepted that many law enforcement and even civilian medical personnel follow these guidelines. And well, they should, because these protocols were to develop, they were developed at the cost of painful lessons in the field in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. It's thought that there were a 1,000 almost 
preventable deaths in these conflicts. And if you extend that to civilian injuries during the same time period, well, the number of preventable deaths might be in the hundreds of thousands. The TCCC's primary goals are to save lives, prevent additional casualties, and in true military fashion, complete the mission. There are three zones or phases of care defined by TC3. These zones provide guidance on the appropriate actions that will aid the injured while taking into account the safety of the medic. And the three phases include, one, care under fire. And during this phase, the medic, and if possible, the mentally alert gunshot victim, let's say, or injured individual, should continue to actively engage the enemy. You have to realize that fire superiority is one of the best medicines to prevent further injuries to casualties and, of course, further casualties. Your goal in this situation is to get your victim out of the line of fire or, say, a vehicle that's on fire and to treat life-threatening hemorrhage with the early and immediate use of tourniquets all while not getting killed yourself. Now, while under fire, it is recommended to place the tourniquet high and tight on the damaged extremity as the circumstances don't really allow you to conduct a thorough evaluation of the anatomy. In other words, put it right over the clothing. Don't cut the clothing off and take a casual, leisurely look at the injuries. You can't afford to do that. Put it high and tight. That's what you should do. Most other interventions should be delayed until the casualty can be moved to a more secure position. Once you've accomplished this, you actually can move on to the next phase, and that's called tactical field care. Once the immediate threat to the medic and patient have been neutralized and a secure perimeter established, you know what? You can start doing limited advanced life support measures. That's called ALS. And this may just involve basic life support. It might involve, in some cases, in the military, just putting a line in. But surgical intervention actually could be involved as well. You might need to establish an airway by a tracheostomy or by a cricho thyrotomy. During this phase, the medic also works to seal sucking stress trauma, treat a tension pneumothorax, bandage wounds, splint fractures, prevent hypothermia, and treat shock, all sorts of stuff that we look at as very important to save people's lives. The third phase is tactical evacuation, something I call TACAVAC, and this phase focuses on transporting the casualty to higher medical resources for definitive care. Once you get them to definitive care, these people aren't home free, but their chances of survival are so much higher. Now, that, of course, is in normal times, but even in survival scenarios, it pays to remember the mnemonic March Pause. That's M-A-R-C-H and Pause, P-A-W-S. March is essentially your primary survey. Many many of you have heard of it. Now, some of you may not have heard of pause, though. Pause is what we call a secondary survey, and it includes even things that we've written about in our book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. Here's what March and pause are briefly. M in March stands for massive hemorrhage. You want to establish, you want to continue or improve the control of life-threatening bleeding by whatever means you possibly have necessary tourniquets, hemostatic agents, pressure dressings, pelvic binders, junctional tourniquets, the whole shebang. A is airway. You want to establish and maintain a reliable airway 
Uh, that may involve just a chin lift and a jaw thrust, or it could mean putting your victim in recovery position or inserting a nasal airway or any of a bunch of different devices or procedures. R is respiration. You have to seal open chest wounds, decompress the tension pneumothorax. You need to ventilate the patient to make sure that oxygen is getting to the lungs. This could be through a bag valve mask. You may have heard of bagging the patient. That's uh, using a special mask that looks a little bit like a, I guess, a bag. And include the use of oxygen if you have it available. Now, if you're trained enough, you might even consider intubating a casualty, although in survival settings, what are you intubating them for? They're not going to wind up going to an ICU with a ventilator. So still, it is a way to at least temporarily give them an airway and, and help their respiration. C, circulation. Administer fluids. Usually, this is done IV to treat shock. This may involve giving blood even or any of a number of other related products, uh, Hexpan, um, also TXA, all sorts of different things can be used. And of course, none of them are going to be available to the survival medic. H is hypothermia. Uh, you remove wet clothing. You cover that victim with blankets. You establish a barrier between the cold ground and the victim if you possibly can. Some people add H for head also, not only hypothermia, but also head, so that they can include the treatment of traumatic brain injuries. This is where you begin to do that. Now, once you've evaluated and treated the issues that are addressed in March, it's time to survey PAWS, P-A-W-S. PAWS refers to P, pain management, A, antibiotics for early prevention of infection. We talk a lot about that around here. W, wound reassessment and care. You always have to keep an eye on that wound. Is it re-bleeding? Is it getting infected? And S, splinting fractures. And also, not just splinting fractures, but providing stabilization and immobilization to injured limbs so that, let's say, they don't re-bleed. In survival settings, honestly, you got to look at this it's a hard reality. Some of this stuff you're just not going to be able to do. You can't duplicate the care that's given in a trauma center in the wild or on the road. But your final outcomes as the medic, well, they are not always going to be happy. But you can use a number of methods in March pause to possibly save the life of those that might otherwise die off the grid after a disaster. It certainly can help. And I'll be going over some of these individual and future shows. I hope that if you have a specific topic you want me to cover, that you send me an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Make sure you make a mention of it at, in comment sections and on Facebook. Just make sure that you let me know what it is that you want me to talk about. Now, before I finish this particular subject, I would like to thank the authors who contribute to the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. I mean, this is where I got some of my latest information on this particular trauma event. And I want to say that their efforts are what allow us to continually adjust these TCCC guidelines to save more military, more law enforcement, more civilian lives in these troubled times. I can't tell you how important that is.
Hey, here's a very quick plug for our, our book. I mentioned it briefly, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings. Have you ever wondered what to do with those fish antibiotics everybody says you should have? Well, here's a book by the doctor who first said that you should have them. How about that? Well, wondering if you've been wondering what I've been writing about all these years, this stuff in wise hands, they'll save some people who otherwise wouldn't survive times of trouble. You have not read a book like Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease written by any other medical professional. It's not stuff you're going to learn at your CERT class or even your wilderness medicine class. You are going to need a book like this in your survival library. It'll tell you all about how to identify various infectious diseases, diseases that are common now, diseases that will be common if we are thrown off the grid at one point or another, how to use the antibiotics that cure them and how to use them wisely, and also the individual dosing, side effects, allergies, pediatric and pregnancy considerations, and a lot more how to put together sick rooms, information about expiration dates, wound care, all sorts of stuff. You've been looking for a book like this, like Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials, your settings for a long time, and you will not regret having it in your survival library. Well, I want to talk a little bit about medical preparedness in general. You know, since we started writing, blogging, videoing about medical preparedness, the natural and man-made disasters that we've had to endure, well, you know what? They've been too numerous to count. There's floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, heat waves, blizzards, other weather events that have caused major damage and loss of life. And those are not even counting the man-made stuff. I mean, I guess all of these will be a possibility, I mean, I guess for the rest of our lives. But you know what? When we started writing about this, we didn't think terrorist attacks, active shooter events, would become such a big part of the new normal. International tensions with powers like Russia, China, boy, they have elevated to the point that, you know, we know at one point or another there's going to be some kind of conflict. Only really the most naive of us think that we can avoid a confrontation with these guys at one point or another, or maybe even places like Iran or, or North Korea, who knows where else. Uh, it, it's hard to witness any of the recent events that have occurred without some vague sense of foreboding. I think everybody has it, and it has a lot of people on edge. I mean, regardless of your political beliefs, somewhere in the back of your mind, you know that things are just not the same as when you were a kid. I mean, there are more extreme weather events. There are more open declarations of hostility, violent acts almost everywhere. Sometimes organized groups, other times just by people that are a little bit deranged. And most of our population is just not ready to deal with an active shooter event, not to mention some major disaster that can make that can take you off the grid and take society over the brink. Uh, in fact, the sheer number of the unprepared will probably take down some of the folk who are actually prepared but live in the same community. As everybody circles the drain, it's going to be hard to not to get caught in the riptide. Now, you'd think that people who prepare for the uncertain future would be looked upon, therefore, with admiration. But... Despite our current predicament, those people who prepare for the consequences of things like this, they're looked upon with amusement. They're looked upon 
a little, you know, give him a little sideways glance and, you know, they're a little suspicious of folks like this. These militia members or these, you know, crazies that are going to go on a shooting spree. You know, the general population associate, associates people that are prepared with those reality show folk that dress in camouflage, live in bunkers and things like that. Well, there's only one thing they call them. What do they call them? Typically. What? Doomsday preppers. Doomsday now, preppers. Now, where did that come from? Oh, boy. I wonder. Well, I remember that show. I remember they tried to get us on it, as a matter <laughs> of fact. Several times. Just... Before it even started. <laughs> right. And we just were not no, interested. Not we happening. had a good, a bad feeling about you the You know what else I'm not going, going on? What? Naked and afraid. Uh, I'm afraid you're not going to see us <laughs> naked out there, guys. Because we don't want to make you afraid. <laughs> right. You'll, you'll be scared. That would be scary. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I don't know how those people do it. I don't know either. You have to absolutely have just such a giant ego, I think. Right. I yes. mean, you must think you're the shiznit <laughs> if you're yep. going to get naked. Because not only are you, I mean, barely blacked out or grayed out on film you've got a camera crew that's watching you do everything including going to the bathroom i mean and there are women that have their menstrual cycles yep. while they're on this show uh, i what happens there? i don't know i don't know we can't i we i don't know well you can't take no pills idea. that will slow will delay but they that. don't do that that's they don't not, that's not what these people are doing Frankly, if I was going to go on the show, I would eat and eat and eat and eat. Yes. There Those was... people who get plumpy and fat and then just sit around, they're the ones that survive. Right. And that's <laughs> or... why it's not really a survival show. No, it's not it's a survival a, show. Can you live for three weeks? Can you starve to death right. for three weeks? Yes. That's what the show is all about. And you about. have to have water. The people who don't have water don't make it. Right. Absolutely do not make it. But... The ones that make it, really, it just depends on where they drop you. Some of these people have been dropped in. They get food all the time. In fact, I think that they get a lot more food than they're shown. And then they they show it at the end. They say, oh, she lost 15 pounds, and it doesn't look like she lost an ounce. I think it's, like, Photoshopped. You think? Well, yeah. it could be. Because, because they, you've seen them different. eat, and you they could tell that they probably had a good food source. They just weren't showing as often as these people could could eat. You know, they had fish or they had crabs or, or shrimp. Or there was some easily accessible food that these people were munching on every day. They weren't losing the weight that they claimed. Anyway, you won't see us on that show. You will not see I'm us not on that sitting, show. I'm not sleeping on the ground with bugs, first of all. Not voluntarily. I mean, if I got to do what I got to do, I got to do it for survival. But to voluntarily get on a plane... And go somewhere and take my clothes off and with no water and food for three weeks. Crazy baby. I don't think I'd even do that for a million dollars, honestly. I know. I think they do it for about forty thousand though. Tropical diseases. Yeah. Think about all the things we've heard these people get. Yep. Some of them get them at the same time. Malaria is forever, dude. Oof. I mean, it's something that can chikungunya. And yeah, that can last, last for years and years. And they put them in years. strange places. They put they drop them in really bizarre places. There's one we saw recently where they put them near the snow. You can't drop a naked person in the snow. I know they freeze to death. My but you gosh. know what I think they actually did? They think they dropped them on like the top of a, an area that happened to have some snow. 
and then they walked to a warmer area where there was actually running water and there was no snow over there. So it, I don't believe that it was as cold as they portrayed it to be at the time. It was probably like a, a spring thaw, but they happened to find a snow place. And it's, it's possible that people didn't even walk very far in the snow because they wound up in areas where there wasn't any snow. <laughs> so I was like, you know, they film things and then they move these people. That's what I think they do. They don't have them walk five miles to their destination. I don't think so either. Quote, reality television is never reality, right? Right. right. But still, <laughs> but still, you know what? What's happening is that there is a new normal. And to figure out what the new normal is, you got to define what the old normal was. What? Let's say a man with a microphone and a press badge comes up to you and asks, excuse me, sir, are you a normal individual? It seems like such a simple question. Are you normal? I mean, it seems simple, doesn't it? Who believes that they're not normal? You'd probably give the man with a mic the, a strange look, walk on. But the truth is, is that the answer is just not as simple as you actually think. What exactly are normal people? The word normal has several definitions. We'll focus on two of them. One standard average or conforming to the group that's pretty normal right and to sane which is psychologically normal right a person who's who is sane normal people have certain characteristics that they would match well one or the other in other words one definition or another either standard average or conforming to the group or sane yeah i think you'd agree that normal folks need let's say a level of organization in their life they don't want a lot of clutter, so they make sure to keep no more than, let's say, a few days' supply of food in the pantry. That's not what preparedness folk do. They wait until the gas tank is nearly empty to refill it. That's also not what preparedness folks do. And they have no medical supplies other than maybe a few Band-Aids and some aspirin in the medicine cabinet. That's not what preparedness folk do. Not even the best place to keep meager supplies, well... Since bathrooms are more humid than other parts of the house, the truth of the matter is is that you have to figure out a cool, dark, dry place for you to keep your supplies. Whenever there's a crisis, whether it's a national crisis or a major epidemic of, let's say, opioid abuse or, let's say, a personal crisis like losing a job, people in general just see before them a bump on the road. I mean, when they stumble, it's usually a personal stumble, they, well, they pick themselves up, they brush the dirt off, and they continue on their way as if nothing had happened. Now, the, when the nation stumbles, and it doesn't affect them necessarily personally, they don't even do that much. So if there was a big one in California, they had a big earthquake, and it sent part of California into the ocean, I mean, the folk over here in Florida probably could care less unless they have family in living right. in California, right? Well... That's what happens. Whenever there is a crisis, whether it's national, uh, like a major epidemic, let's say, of opioid abuse or personal, like losing a job, well, the truth of the matter is that normal folk actually aren't really learning any lessons. They realize that there are lessons that might be learned, but they're not really interested in learning them. 
a major storm is just a news story or maybe a chance to play some board games with the kids. Uh, a terrorist attack, well, it elicits in it a response perhaps, but only when it's close to home. The Parkland shootings, for example, were very close, just about 10 minutes away from right here where I am sitting right now. But there really wasn't any major talk about it on the street in our neighborhood. I mean, we just seem to forget that it happened. Or or we use it as some kind of platform for more government interference. I mean, you've, I'm sure you've seen that on the news a million times. In other words, less self-reliance. That's bad. Despite the risks, there's no action that's being taken by these folks to become more self-reliant. And that's because normal people depend on others to deal with and resolve all of their problems. And why? Because they pay taxes. We pay taxes in this country for over 100 years uh, since the, I guess, amendment that made income taxes legal. All of our citizens pay taxes. So they believe the government is going to step in and give them a helping hand whenever they need it. Whenever. The support could and be... And quickly. Yes. And, and that's quickly. the other expectation and that's wrong. That's exactly right. And the, and the support doesn't even necessarily mean hard, tangible help. It could be in the form of food stamps in hard times. But if there's no food, the food stamps don't really matter. Uh, now, we also expect swift emergency responses and natural calamities. We expect intervention in areas of civil unrest. And most people believe wholeheartedly that help will always be on the way. The greater the role of government in daily life, the more the population depends on it. This is the normal expectation. But given the definitions of normal that we've talked about just in the last few minutes, this attitude is standard and conforms to the group, okay? Yes, it's normal from that standpoint. But is it sane? Is it normal from the standpoint of sanity. I don't think so. Let's take the case of essential personnel for a municipality. This would include police officers, firefighters, emergency medical techs, etc. These are the emergency responders that normal folks expect will help them out in the crisis. But what would actually happen? What would happen? In surveys performed in all sorts of different places, several cities, police precincts, fire stations, emergency rooms, many public servants that we depend upon have indicated that they won't report for duty in the case of a truly serious catastrophe. But who can blame them, really? And that's right. Because most likely they're going to need to take care of their own families. Yes. Or and, even their own hide. <laughs> and you might think. Or just their home or maybe a pet. You know, pets are very dear to people. My father treated Pookie who passed away recently, like a child. I even kidded around with him that he said that I thought he loved the dog more than he loved me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, people care a whole lot about their pets, um, but they also care about their families, their children. Maybe they have a next-door neighbor they're concerned about. It might not even be a relative, but somebody that they they dearly care about, deeply care about, and are concerned that that person is in danger. They're going to want to go help that person. That's human nature. That's true. And I don't blame them. I understand. Right. Ordinarily, if you weren't of a realistic mindset, 
in this kind of situation, you would consider it unthinkable that a police officer wouldn't report to work or a fireman wouldn't report right. to work. But what if he has a, a one-year-old and a three-year-old and a, a young wife who's counting on him to help? That's because right. she can't get everything together. Maybe they need to leave. She can't do that with two tiny little kids that are, are scared. And there's so many issues that people would encounter outside of the work environment that would either emotionally keep them from going to work or even sometimes physically keep them from going to work, that they have to take care of someone else. They don't have a choice. Absolutely. You know, these professionals that we count on, awesome people, they rescue us in times of trouble, but they also have wives, they also have husbands, parents, children. Who do you think they're going to rush to protect in a truly horrendous emergency? You or their own families? I don't have to answer this question for you, do I? I mean, this is just a simple fact of life. It's not a criticism of the brave men and women that keep us safe in normal times. It's just a simple truth. That's all there is to it. In the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, the New Orleans Police Department surveyed those law enforcement officers who didn't report for duty. Now, a small percentage of them were indeed victims of the catastrophe, maybe couldn't get to their stations because of flooding, things like that. But most people, or most of these officers, cited their families as the reason for their absence. And to expect them to leave their loved ones and do their duty, that's a normal expectation of of a lot of people in our society. But it's certainly not a sane expectation. So how do normal people become sane people? By realizing that society can be fragile and that there are events that may occur to send the world into disarray. Once things happen that knock us off kilter, a downward spiral, well, that's going to make life pretty difficult. Certainly, it's, it's a challenge for all, but maybe a little less so for people who prepare beforehand for disasters and un, unrest or other kinds of catastrophes. That small minority of people that actually are prepared are marginalized by the greater part of the population they, who give them the nickname of preppers or doomsdayers or whatever, survivalists, whatever you want to call them. Uh, we call these people preppers. Uh, well, these are the people that stockpile foods, supplies, even precious metals for use in a societal upheaval. They also take time to learn skills, largely skills that are lost to modern city dwellers that might be useful if a disaster took away the grid. Now, these folk are few and far between. Maybe they comprise about 3% of the population. But they're going to be the vanguard of a movement if a collapse actually occurs. What types of events could cause a collapse of society? Well, there are various scenarios that could lead to times of trouble, pandemics, terrorist attacks, solar flares, economic collapse, gosh, just some of the possible calamities that could befall a community or even a country. The likelihood of any of these life-threatening things happening, honestly, are pretty small. But what's the chance that you or your children are going to be affected by one of these events over the course of many years, over the course of a lifetime, or add to that the lifetime of your children. Not so small that there may be some kind of issue that occurs, some kind of bad occurrence that occurs as a result of a disaster. The preparedness community is 
basically the vanguard to protect against that. I mean, we understand that there could be storm clouds on the horizon, uh, unlike the majority of folk. I mean, well, we face perilous circumstances with action, not disbelief. I mean, it can be argued that, indeed, the people that are prepared are the normal ones, even though they may not, let's say, conform to the group or actually meet the requirements for normality, they're at least a lot more sane and more normal in that sense than their fellow citizens. If you're a member of the preparedness community, you've got to take the opportunity of generally normal times. That's what we're in right now, although you may not think they're normal, but there's still food being delivered from the farms to the stores, and that to me is a pretty good sign that things are still okay. Basically, it's time to learn new skills that might get you through a catastrophe. A lot of this stuff was common knowledge to our ancestors, a lot of these skills, uh, things like growing food, using natural products for medicinal uses, and we just sort of lost them somewhere in the river of time over over decades, over many, many decades. If you learn things that are useful, if the power goes down, you can increase the likelihood that you and your loved ones will succeed if, heaven forbid, everything else fails. You'll be prepared for the worst, even while hoping for the best. You may consider all this stuff paranoid. Okay, You can see folks that are into preparedness, but they're the kind of folk that are usually clad in camouflage or armed to the teeth or hunkered down in some foxhole or some bunker. Well, sure, They'll put people in ridiculous situations with no clothes, like on Naked and Afraid, for example, or maybe with just one item, or in an environment that even a spider would have trouble surviving in. Well, maybe this is your view of preparedness, but this couldn't be farther than the truth. I mean, if you're self-reliant, you don't eagerly wait for some terrible series of events to bring society down. You don't want to do anything other than live to be 100 years old with your Grandkids whispering in your ear, gee, Grandpa, what are we going to do with all these supplies? They view their preparation as some kind of insurance. You buy health insurance. That doesn't mean you want to get sick. You buy life insurance, but you certainly don't want to die. Being prepared is insurance as well. Instead of paying money for something that is intangible, something on a piece of paper, well, you're buying food, you're buying medical supplies and other things. Well, that will help ensure that you and your loved ones actually do well regardless of what the slings and arrows of life may bring you. The road to self-reliance, it is a long and a winding one. It's going to take some of your time. It's going to take some of your energy. And it's going to take some of your money, yes, your money, to become self-sufficient. You need to accumulate things that are going to be useful in obtaining a head start to success in dark times. And you can do it without a huge investment. A 50-pound bag of rice, for example, is still 20-something bucks at a big box store. Now, a lot of the products that you have can be improvised. That You can and should have, let's say, a commercially produced tourniquet, like the cat tourniquet, the soft tourniquet, soft tea, or the SWAT tourniquet. But a bandana and a stick might be effective as well if you use it right. Look at what you have in your home. Consider the ways that household items can be modified for use in a disaster, instead of throwing out old sheets, cut them up into bandages. 
So a realistic assessment of your medical supplies, that's going to give you a good idea of how prepared you are for an unforeseen event. Where are you deficient? What purchases or improvisations are going to offer you the best opportunity to be ready? What skills would be useful to learn? These are things that you're going to find on our website at doomandbloom.net and a number of other people's websites. And we've accumulated them over a decade of producing medical preparedness content. So hopefully you'll find the information that you need there. Benjamin Franklin, I just want to say that he once said that when the well is dry, you learn the worth of water. And the same can be said for many aspects of modern technology. If you're thrown into a situation where there is no electric power, how many items in your house are going to be useless? Well, quite a few, I'll bet. So it stands to reason that you should consider the ways that you're going to do things like produce power. Get batteries, and not just get batteries, get rechargeable batteries. Get solar panels, get a solar battery charger. There's all sorts of stuff. There's propane gas, there's wind power, uh, wind turbines, there's solid solar panels with marine batteries and inverters. You don't have to be an industrial engineer or some extremely wealthy person to put some of these together. You just need some motivation and a little elbow grease, and you'll be on your way. So listening to me rattle on doesn't make you <laughs> a it's not rattling expert on. prepper. I think you're doing a great job. Well, thank you very much. But it's it doesn't make you an expert prepper. It doesn't make you a doctor. It's a lot more complicated than that. But if you get some education, some training, get some medical supplies maybe, Yes, and actually that's what I was about to bring up is, you know, a lot of people do get stuff. And what we did over the years when, I mean, we were preppers before, hurricane-type preppers, but what we did over time is we would accumulate a small amount of equipment. Right. And then we would learn it, and we would practice with it. And one thing I learned, I'll never forget this, was with my solar panels – and our marine batteries, I had an inverter. Now, inverters were quite expensive. I'm not sure how they are now, but I didn't get a really expensive one. And I didn't get thick cables, which connect the inverter to the marine battery. So my cable, I, I went cheap on that, and I went cheap on the inverter. Well, when I plugged it in, uh-huh. in the house, after I had charged the marine battery with the solar panel outside... <laughs> I connected the inverter, and it sparked, and the inverter had a little flame coming out of it. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, I think I remember that. Sparks and flames are not something you want to see coming out of your inverter. Well, if you want to start a fire. <laughs> it was in the house, yeah. too. I was like, oh, I charged this outside. I daisy-chained my solar panels. I was, You know, I had it all under control. And I was going to plug something into this inverter. But you got to connect the marine battery to the inverter. I Again, I went cheap on the ca- those cables. I bought, let me tell you, now, folks, I have cables that are probably three-quarters of an inch thick. They're, they're good. And that inverter was not cheap. I had to wait to get that thing. But the point is, don't just buy things. First of all, don't buy things based on money. That's a big lesson. But also don't just buy things and put them away because when you actually go to use them, first of all, you might not remember. You might not have put away a book specifically about connecting inverters to marine batteries. It might be some obscure thing that you just 
forgot to put an educational book away, a physical book, not something on the internet that you can read, because at this point there's no more Google, and you're in trouble. Because now, like what happened with me, your inverter just sparked. So all these things you wanted to plug in, and by the way, I only had one at the time, but one is none. Two, right. is, two is not enough. I forget how the saying goes. Two exactly. is one. And three is maybe enough. So I should have three inverters. I think I have two now, so I should get another one. And again, I should have three sets of the cables. And you should also look, how many charges is your marine battery going to get? Do you need to keep charging it and discharging it? You need to look all these things up, but it's about practicing with the things that you buy. So if you buy a tourniquet, get it out of the package. Tourniquets are not sterile. You're not ruining it. I know some of them say one use, but you're not putting it on a bloody limb and then, and then putting it back in your kit. You're practicing, and it takes practice to learn whether or not you're doing something right and to figure out the proper way to do it. That's so important. Practice, practice, practice. Such a good point. Education. That's such a good point. I'll tell you, there's nothing that frosts my cookies more than if somebody buys one of our kits, which, I mean, I think are the best kits on the market, takes it. Some of them are really loaded with a lot of stuff. And takes, (laughs) right, and takes them and puts them on the top shelf of some closet somewhere and just say, I'm medically prepared without taking a look at them, you know, moving them things around, making sure that they know how to work every single one of the items they, in them. Exactly. That is Where so I'm, key. I have, I, I mean, it, it's almost embarrassing to me, but it's highly educational. I have a video on YouTube, folks, and it's, it's just so not a sexy topic. It's called Survival Gauze. And I literally took every gauze that I could find, either around our house, around our warehouse, from kits, and I laid it out, and I talked to you about it. And I tell you what the words on the package mean and when you're going to use them. And then I demonstrate some of these things so that you understand the world of gauze. And gauze is not gauze. Gauze is a million different things. There's rolled up gauze, there's flat gauze, there's sterile gauze, there's non-sterile gauze, there's I mean there's stuff it's that you use for packing. There's there's non-stick gauze, there's burn dressing different kinds of band-aids yeah. sure. in different places. I mean there's just there's just so much. And I cover a lot of it. And I think if you look at the silly non-exciting video that you'll have a good idea of the gauze that comes in all of our kits. DR Bones, Whether Nurse Amy channel. DR Bones, Nurse Amy, YouTube channel. Easy to find. It's one of the earlier videos. But, again, it's about educating because a lot of what's in first aid kits is gauze. And right. that's not because see, I'm trying to be cheap. It's because... If you have a wound, you're going to have to change dressings frequently. So I don't want you to just be able to make one dressing change. And I'm talking about the bigger bags. I need you to make a lot of dressing changes until hopefully the wound is healed and to have the proper equipment for it. Right. And people don't realize the amount of materials that they need to do routine wound care. That's right. uh, Whatever amount of gauze and dressings (laughs) that you have at home 
It ain't enough. I guarantee it. Unless it's in, you have boxes and boxes of this stuff. Speaking of boxes, I actually have um, some overstock. Oh. I accumulated some some gauze, different types of gauze. So I'm actually going to start selling some things that I don't normally sell. I've, I really, my whole thing has been, what would we want in a kit? Uh, talking with uh, other types of experts like dentists, mm-hmm, consulting right. with dentists about right, right. the dental kit. Um, but I accumulated some excesses. Um, I'm a bit of a shopaholic when it comes to medical supplies. <laughs> when I find a good deal, I am getting it. So I'm actually going to have some of these boxes that you're talking about oh, good. for sale for folks who don't normally see things like that on my website. All right. So we're going to have quote cases. Keep an eye out for that limited, because I guarantee you. Limited qu- quantities. I'm not selling all of my, my gauze because I like my gauze. If you believe that there's some long-term event happening, believe me, you're going to expend all of your supplies and you do not have enough. So make sure that you check out Nurse Amy's store. I'm sure she has. I'll get it up. Oh, can I talk about one more thing? We don't have much time. Okay. Go ahead. One more thing. Uh, I have a new thing on the store. And I'm super excited about it because people have asked me for this for 10 years. Is the waterproof case. Oh, yeah. Yes. If you have a boat or things like that. Marine, canoes, even if you want it just for your car in case you go out somewhere and it's raining. Mm -hmm. I actually have two sizes. I've only put up the, the smaller one so far, but the smaller one is not small. It's actually like 10 by 8, and the interior space is like 4 and a half. So if it's the bleeding kits, the compact kits, the pocket, the um, motorcycle kit, it fits the gunshot kit beautifully, which is actually the exact reason why I got that size was to make sure that it fit the gunshot kit perfectly. I can also put the dental kit in it. I'll just have to exchange the canvas bag for it. But the dental kit does have the option to come now in the waterproof case. Yay. Okay, so we've got some new things for you to look at at this on the store. Make sure that you check that out. I just wanted to say, you know, how we were talking about normality and things like that. How do you convince people that preparedness is a sign of a normal person? Well, by maintain, maintaining a positive attitude towards the future and becoming an example for other people in your community. If they're preparing for disasters, if they see that preparing for disasters just makes common sense, they might start to prepare as well. And you know what? You might have an entire community ready to deal with the uncertain future. I just want to say very quickly, we really don't have much time, but we will be in Kodak, Tennessee, doing an eight-hour class on May 5th. 2019. That's we're talking That's about. Near, near Knoxville. How do they get to that? Absolutely. Store.doomandbloom.net and go on the hands-on classes category. All right. Thanks so much. That's all the time we have for this week. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton. We thank you for being part of our audience. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Stocked with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes, many fruits.